disclosure, I am Robin Farzad. So check out this LinkedIn bio. Ex-Chief Speechwriter for New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, his honor. Ex-Editor-in-Chief of The Daily Beast. Now, Senior Political Analyst and Fill-In Anchor at CNN. Which, by the way, makes my guest an employee of AT&T. What a time to be alive. Stay with us. Full disclosure is made possible by our friends at Elwood Thompson's, a small, independent, local, organic market located right here in the RVA. But really, it's just so much more than that. I posit that it is the best market in Virginia, hands down. And various websites and popularity contests have backed that. I'm there for Indian Wednesdays. I'm there for breakfast, the Blanchard's coffees, the Mexican buffet, the flatbreads, the kombucha. I even think they have some CBD-infused lemonade, which is a heck of a lot easier than rolling a joint. And it's probably healthier for you. You must check them out at ElwoodThompson's.com and at the corner of Elwood and Thompson Streets. Hence the name, here at the top of Carytown RVA. In studio with me, such luck. Look what the cat dragged in. John Avlon, uh, about to start at CNN, where he's going to be senior political analyst and fill-in anchor. You were at the Daily Beast, where you covered yourself in glory, what, over five years? Five years as editor-in-chief, and before that, five years as a columnist and uh, political editor uh, of, of News Beast, uh, the Newsweek Daily Beast incarnation, and then executive editor before I uh, took over for Tina Brown and. 2013. So let's just get the dirty laundry out there. Did Tina Brown ever get a chance to traumatize you? Because she interviewed me for a job once, but Is that right? a lot of people there had PTSD <laughs> and tried to talk me now, out of it. No, I love Tina. I mean, look, the three people I've worked longest for in my life are Rudy Giuliani, Tina Brown, and Barry Diller. And Yeah, you're a masochist. Uh, no, I got to say, uh, you know, they, they each have their own reputations. I, I, I got along beautifully with them all. I have a lot of respect for them all. I learned a lot from them all, very different things. Um, you know, Barry most recently over the last five years is editor-in-chief of the Beast, and he is uh, just a, a brilliant uh, creative mind, and, and and how he thinks about branding was really fascinating as we revived the Beast. Tina is just a, a legend for all the right reasons. She is a, a literary light. She is really uh, sharp and sardonic and into the zeitgeist, utterly irreverent in Johnny, the Johnny, Johnny, do sense. me a favor and uh, uh, drive this moving truck around the block while I host people. No. Hold on, that's like Ariana Huffington you just did there. Ariana right? Huffington, it's <laughs> wonderful. Do it for the exposure. We can't pay you, but it's okay. It's I, a- I actually had a byline in the Daily Beast. You ran a book excerpt. and I, We did. And I, I got to ask you, you know, yeah, I don't know if you're in a non-disclosure, but I'm not asking for state secrets or anything. Did that thing generate a profit or, or was IAC Barry Diller's campus so big and sprawling. I mean, it had Vimeo and uh, Match.com and everything that it didn't matter to him. Well, look, it, it, the beast, I think with, with media properties, you got to understand that, hey, we're in a major period of transition. That's not exactly a secret. Um, but the brand- Do it for the exposure. No, no, no. But more, more than that, I mean, look, I think people invest in media properties for reasons of influence, building a brand that actually has value. I think that, you know, overall, and I can nerd out on this stuff forever, um, because I lived it, um, you know, we more than doubled the the size of the audience when I was editor in chief to 1.1 million readers a day. Um, I think it's fair to say that you know when when Tina left and we were coming out of the Newsweek divorce, that there were plenty of people who thought the Daily Beast wouldn't survive. We are bigger and stronger and more awarded uh, than ever before, and the team um, we built was absolutely extraordinary because we decided to double down on original reporting and. Uh, broke a lot of news. And, and my deputy, uh, Noah Shockman, took over as editor-in-chief. That was important for me as I left. Um, 
and it's in it's just in in great shape. And we've, you know, what what part of what it was wanted to really focus the brand on the intersection of politics, pop culture, and power. And and once you know who you are, once you know what your differentiation is, and one of Barry Diller's mantras always was. Um, you know, differentiation is the soul of a brand. And, and, and it was one of the things I was focused on with my team is in, in an era where information is everywhere, differentiation is the soul of a news brand. So you really need to know who you are, how you're different, and what your value added is for your audience. And that creates loyalty. If you're idiosyncratic, if you're irreverent, if you're intelligent, if you respect the audience's time and intelligence, they'll reward that. Where I think people really screw up is they end up condescending unintentionally the audience by having a sense of, what it should be. Here's what my audience likes. And it creates a sense of distance between what they like and what they're interested in and what their audience likes. And once you do that, you condescend to the audience. They cop to that. And ironically, you destroy your brand because you try to be all things to all people and you lose that that trust. And so that's that's where it's at to me. You know, what people really want is news that calls BS, that's irreverent, that's intelligent, that's independent. And that's what we but delivered to the beast. But it still points to the ancient riddle. And yes, I will walk yeah. out with you. Do you ultimately need a billionaire backstopping you? Do you need a distraction like the way the Washington Post and Newsweek back in the day had Kaplan before that blew up? Or the New York – I mean, I'll get to the New York Times and others, but now the Washington Post uh, is backstopped by the richest man in the world. The Boston Globe is backstopped by a billionaire. The LA Times was just sure. taken out of its suffering by one of the richest men in Los Angeles. Right. Look, I, I think, you know, go back to – let's let's – but let, let's let's throw the Citizen Kane card down on the table. You know, uh, even in that era of newspapers, um, you know, in the movie Citizen Kane, which based on William Randolph Hearst, the, the, the Philadelphia Inquirer, Kane's paper is based on the money from a silver mine um, that he had inherited. Um, I think, you know, throughout history, there have been media properties that were loss leaders um, that uh, that raise revenue from other sources. I don't think that's inevitable. I think news can um, be profitable. But I think at the end of the day, and here's what's important I'm evangelical about, news is a mission-driven business. Journalism is a mission-driven business. Why that matters is you can't ignore the business side, but the mission side has to override all. And it requires investors who understand that. If you're looking for high margin businesses, there are plenty of things you can do that are better than news right now. We're in a period historically in the wake of newspapers where you had advertising revenue, subscription revenue. They were incredibly profitable in the mid 20th century. Fragmentation has undercut that. I think you're going to see a period of reconsolidation. And I think the properties that actually are differentiated will make money. I don't think they need to be lost leaders indefinitely. But certainly if you go back to the early days of TV, I mean, CBS News, the iconic Ed Murrow CBS News was a loss leader for the other programs. But because they used public airwaves, that was part of the deal. Our democracy depends on journalism, right? One of my favorite lines is the Constitution doesn't mention political parties. I'm an independent. I'm a centrist. That means a lot to me. Um, but it does mention journalists. It, in, in the First Amendment. And, and we are part of the civic structure that the founders imagined. And so it's not optional. So as journalists, you need to understand it's a mission-driven business. Can't take the business side for granted, but the mission needs to come first. And if you know what the mission is, if the audience knows what the mission is, if everyone on your team knows what the mission is, it will have life. And right now, I've said this before and I'll say it again, I think we'll look back on this as the best time to be journalists. Not because it was easy, but because it was hard and because our mission was clear. Talk to me about the problem, which I've, I've referred to in the past. I think the late David Carr wrote about it is yeah. this golden age of content. Unfortunately, there's a content glut. If I have a backlog of long reads hashtag that I want to read on the Daily Beast or the Atavist or something else or a 25,000-word Scientology expose in The New York or that comp- 
competes with my Netflix backlog, everything I want to do on Amazon. They're, they're literally, as the CEO of Netflix, the founder said, our biggest competitor is sleep. <laughs> I hadn't heard that line, but it's good. It, it's sort of like what Robert Gazueta said about Coke and our real competitor's water. Um, look, uh, you know, hashtag content's an easy thing to uh, stereotype. I think that that's all the more reason why it's important to do something that's differentiated in quality. I think quality uh, content, quality journalism creates a quality audience. Now, don't underestimate, and you know this as a journalist, but people at home maybe don't fully appreciate it, all the economic pressures to create highly disposable transactional content. Um, and the end game there is we'll have AI robots create, you know, write, write words on paper. Um, that is, is a path to disaster. The other way to do it is to say that, you know what, um, advertising against hard news is difficult, it's polarizing, and that leads you down a path where everything becomes some combination of entertainment or sports um, because it's you know great demos, it's highly relevant, and it's utterly meaningless and uncontroversial. It's also it, it's a narcotic. Um, it is bread and circuses in the in the old Roman sense. And and what folks need to understand is is that um, both if you you vote with your eyeballs and your wallet every day, which you consume, you'll get more of. Um, so to that sense, be a conscious consumer of content, but also on the advertising side. Um, and I got to say the sponsor of your show sounds delicious and I can't uh, oh, wait you'll to go try there it. tomorrow morning. You'll love it. Um, but, but, you know, there's a decision made on the part of businesses and what kind of, uh, uh, content sources they will support, and they need to be more conscious about it, because at this particularly this transition fragmented time in media, um, companies have more influence than they think about what kind of content will survive, and they need to be conscious about it. They need to be enlightened corporate citizens, um, because the, a lot of the gravitational pull is towards the disposable and the dumb. That's dangerous to democracy, and that's got me fired up as bad as anything. And I have to press you on that because, and I don't want to get you fired before you even started, but unfortunately, CNN has been accused of this over five years. And it oh. started with the MH370 thing and Don Lemon's musings about the supernatural and maybe, um, um, uh, you know, aggrandizing Donald Trump, Donald Trump being a phenomenon at The Apprentice where he knew Jeff Zucker. Look, I swear I'm not trying to get you no. fired. <laughs> you're slated to start officially on That's June right. 25th. But I got to say, in fairness, boy. you're a hard guy to fire. You're very photogenic. You're very telegenic. Avalon's thinking, what the hell did I do? Agree to come into this show. This That's guy right. like trapped me in trapment. But CNN gets knocked on a lot. That poor political analyst. Why does Chris Saliza get pilloried all the oh, time? Oh, God, who knows? Look, I mean, you know, look, part of being a journalist right now, you know, you take a lot of incoming. What I think people don't appreciate how much is, frankly, how much not just normal social media harassment, but actually threats are part of the job. Um, that is something that we don't talk about enough, but is it, people need to understand that threats are now part of the job description if you are in political media. Um, and that goes beyond just sort of like ribbing and is it, you know, hip to hate somebody. Look, I'm a huge U2 fan. It's hip to hate U2 right now. I have yeah. utter serene confidence that they will look good in the rearview mirror history, whatever a passing fad is. In the contest between hip and cool, I'll take cool. Cool is eternal. Hip is a fad. Um, I Look, I, 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 I think CNN is a vital news organization. It is one of the last great global independent news organizations at a time where that matters enormously, not only in the era of Trump, but what's coming next at a time where press freedom and freedom around the world is in retreat. You need great global independent news brands, and I'm, I'm proud to join it. And um, But, but you know, I, I also think the organization has really risen to the challenge. You know, you mentioned Don Lemon. Don is a friend of mine and, and my wife, Margaret. Do you have any enemies? 
Is anybody you'd like to talk smack about? While <laughs> you're here south of the Mason-Dixon line. I, I, I mean, mean, I'll give you cover. I mean, look, you know, I, I, in general, I'm not. Fox is a great network. I think they do wonderful. <laughs> good, good. No, look, I, I think you know, you're, you know, you're, you're. Good enemies help define you, and I think a principled fight. We all should be fighting the good fight. I'm also somebody that doesn't dig. Um, uh, one of my rules at the Daily Beast was don't feed the trolls. What I meant by that is don't, you know, my dad used to say, you know, um, you know, you argue with a fool, you got two fools. Um, there's a great line from Cormac McCarthy's uh, book, All the Pretty Horses, um, you know, don't chew on something that's eaten it yet. Um, I think they're productive fights, but productive fights almost definitionally are about something bigger than yourself. I think people get distracted when they get really consumed by their own enmities. Um, and, and I've never, my wife will tell you this, I've it's never- It's a lot of fun. I mean, don't knock it. You know, I'm never- Before you I'm, go to sleep at night, if you look at the ceiling and think about all the people who wronged you, it's you a know, great use of I don't your think psychic that's energy. I think it's right. <laughs> I mean, exactly. I think that's, I that's, I think that's a terrible. I mean, I think Nelson Mandela had this great line about how hating people is like taking poison, hoping it hurts the other guy. Um, which is not to say that that I'm I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not putting myself on a pedestal. I, I get as as fired up uh, as folks, but but it's about it's got to be about a righteous fight about real issues. It's not about individual. It's about lies. It's about demagoguery. It's about deceit. It's about divisiveness. It's you know I think as somebody said you know just fixating on people and gossip has never really interested me. Uh, I like talking about ideas and issues much more. He's a lover, not a hater. John Avalon. Well, you know, you know, <laughs> ha- you know, haters gonna hate. Let's not play that game. Let's beat him. John Avalon in studio with us. He is incoming senior political analyst and fill in anchor at CNN. He um, starts at the end of June. Uh, I have to ask you: uh, Was that time pegged to the closure of the AT and T deal? I mean, it happened so rapidly. If you had asked the markets or people two months ago that they'd say it's likely not going to happen absent a huge rash of divestitures, especially CNN, it's a little surreal. And that's so in the crosshairs of Donald Trump. He'll inveigh against it and maybe instruct the FTC. But now it's a part of AT&T. Yeah, I, I don't have a ton of insight into that no, case. No, it doesn't. I don't, I don't expect you. I mean, you haven't started. Uh, no, I mean, and, and the timing is utterly coincidental in, in that in that regard. I mean, I'm joining New Day. Chris Cuomo moved to prime time. I've been doing New Day every day for uh, a year or so, Chris Berman has taken over as the anchor with Allison, and and they're a great team. And and this was just sort of after five years editor in chief. It's kind of a logical, you know, inflection point. You know, the opportunity to leave a place on top, which almost never happens as an editor in chief. Uh, and the reality is, I get a lot of energy from being on air. I always have, and 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 I think as we're all trying to fight the good fight as journalists. Um, I think when you look at what CNN has done, has stepped up to the the Trump attacking them really personally, and I think that is because in this, you know, to some extent, the the, the fight uh, against polarization and the rise of partisan media, which I think has really got a lot to answer for about the times we're in, CNN has tried to fight a position really analogous to the center and to independents, uh, where you're not going for narrow but niche intense in, uh, audience, um, you're trying to do something bigger, a little bit better, and I think like them focusing on the facts first approach and being relentless and insistent on that is exactly right. We need to insist on a fact-based debate. Um, and look, you're not going to appeal to hardcore partisans on either side who will get frustrated when you don't sing from the AM, the, the amen, you know, to their particular amen corner. But I think, you know, a lot of the criticism uh, occurs occasionally because they're trying to have representative debates. I think the challenge is to make sure you've got folks representing a Trump point of view who are still showing a fidelity to the facts. And I think the obligation for anchors and people on air is to do as much fact-checking in real time as humanly possible. Um, 
you know, at the Daily Beast, we had a slogan that I was a big evangelist for, and it's a reflection of my beliefs, that we want to be nonpartisan but not neutral. Well, what does that mean? That means that we are um, going to uh, have a fact-based debate. We are going to not parrot any one party's side or talking points. At the same time, we're not going to buy into the myth of moral equivalence on every issue. That's vitally important because I think you can slide into a situation where you're doing, you know, I forgot who said this, but, you know, I think it was Isaac Asimov, uh, you know, you, you know, you know, my ignorance and, 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 and your facts are equally uh, important. They're not. They're issues where you need to absolutely insist on a fact-based debate, and that may seem partisan to some folks in the moment, but that's about a larger fidelity of the truth. And I think what people really are thirsting for in an environment where you've got a kind of blizzard of lies very often um, is someone who can really uh, call BS and, 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 and be a scorekeeper and be articulate about our better angels at a time when they're not being uh, you know, appealed to. Uh, and for me, like the central quote of our time is an, actually an older quote by Daniel Patrick Moynihan, senator from New York, said, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. I think that should be on every newsroom in the country. Um, and we've got a White House that too often doesn't play by those rules. So it's up to us as journalists and as citizens to insist on it. I got to ask you, and you were a celebrated speechwriter, top speechwriter for mm -hmm. Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who, um, you know, was on the wane maybe in his last year in office and then 9-11 happened. And you can imagine him, you know, holding his hands over his nose and then marching down, you know, Chamber Street and going to the scene and marshalling the troops and preparing the country for uh, the, the the inconceivable uh, tragedy of the, the the body count and the casualty count afterwards. What if he had just stopped after that? Because everything that came afterwards, and I know it's hard for you to talk about him. You've kind of been outspoken about how frustrated you are from from the vitriol perspective and his defense as Trump's attorney. But he, you just talked about going out on the top, and he had resurrected his career. He had resurrected his image. This is his honor. He. He turned around New York. He America's made Times mayor. Square respectable, America's mayor. But then everything after that, the, the Senate races, the abortive presidential races, and then as the coup de grace, what has he been doing over the past year? How is that helping his reputation? I asked the same thing, by the way, about Rex Tillerson, right? You can yeah. argue that you had multinational-like power. You, had a, a, you were like a country in running ExxonMobil. And working for Donald Trump in the State Department backwaters for a year and taking grief from this guy has only sullied his reputation and anybody else who's been involved with it. Well, him. look, I think you know, Rex Tillerson was sold a bill of goods that didn't exactly materialize, right? I mean, you know, it was Rudy versus, I guess, Romney for Secretary of State. Tillerson gets proposed um, by, I suppose, Gates and Condi Rice to Trump at a transition meeting. Um, and it seems like he's like Trump's kind of guy. He's going to be an executive. He's going to understands the world. I think not coincidentally, you know, the fact he got a medal of freedom from Putin, um, uh, you know, should have at least raised some questions, but apparently didn't inside the Trump co, uh, uh after the election and the, um, not allegations, the fact of Russian interference in our elections. Um, but Mayor Rudy G, were so these Rudy, guys yeah, allies? Were these guys allies in Manhattan? I mean, no. let's not forget they're both New Yorkers. They're yeah, no, New no, Yorkers. very, very, very. One much went so. after the mafia. Another one was kind of, you know, <laughs> well, befriended certain elements of the mob. Well, I, I you know, uh, often questioned, never indicted. Um, I, I think that Rudy. Um, look, first of all, I was and am very proud to have worked for Rudy when he was mayor. He. Uh, Everyone's career doesn't deserve to be defined by a single chapter. And he was obviously a controversial mayor, but he saved New York City. Um, New York City, and I think urban America in general, was considered ungovernable at the time. Um, in a very short period of time in his first term, 
Uh, he cut crime dramatically in a way that had never been done before. Um, and over his eight years, he brought life back to a city that a lot of folks had given up on. He was ahead of national trends. He was sort of head of a class of a third-way generation of mayors who a great new New Republic article by Peter Beinert called The New Pragmatists. It was a third-generation, third-wave, third-way generation of mayors who really revived urban America. And, um, and, and he was actually a lot more popular before 9-11 than is conventionally understood. There's always a, a liberal segment of the city that didn't like him, but he won his re-election by nearly 60 percent. And the fact he was succeeded by Mike Bloomberg, you had 20 years of Republican and independent mayors in New York um, that really saved New York City. And they did it in part by not being enthralled to sort of a a, 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 a um, But John, go back to oh, his, you know, he cut teeth. He was a rule of law guy. He took sure down, he was. He took down, you know, great elements, cracked down on financial fraud. Oh, if you read Den time. of Thieves and these other things, everything that's going on now behind the scenes of – you know, you think about his campaign manager is, is, you know, Mueller has these guys in the crosshairs and somebody's going to flip. It's exactly the kind of characters that, that Rudy G as prosecutor would pursue. Look, I, I think that's that's a fair point. And I've, I've got, you know, my disagreements with Rudy now and we've talked about them in public and in private. Um, and it's not, uh, you know, I can't be more concerned about his legacy than he is. Um, I think he's got a great legacy to defend as mayor. And and it was always someone whose credibility, remember, this is a guy who's pro-choice, pro-gay rights, pro-immigrant as a Republican, Fort Worth School, someone who criticized Pat Buchanan's influence on the Republican Party at the time, while at the same time criticizing people like Al Sharpton on the left. Yeah. Um, and his politics were not dramatically different than Bill Clinton's in, in the late 1990s when I went to work for him as an advance man on his re-election campaign. Um, but but I think what he's doing now, and, and the times when I've disagreed with him publicly, and I always try to put it in perspective and context, um, is it is beneath him and it is not representative of his best self. I think in his mind, he has a job to defend his client. Everyone's entitled to a great defense. And his job is to primarily, as he has said, play to the court of public opinion. But when he denigrates the rule of law and due process, um, I think he diminishes his best uh, his own personal history as not only a law and order guy, but a prosecutor who took on powerful figures. You know, um, uh, you know, I said this on air, I said this to him, but you can't denigrate the Mueller investigation as a lynch mob. It's nothing resembling that. Um, you can't, you know, you, you can try to play to your base and play to the court of public opinion, but you shouldn't l- become untethered to reality and facts. And, um, and, and, and I, I have enormous amount of respect and affection for Rudy. Uh, I really disagree with him about Donald Trump. Uh, and, um, and, and I really disagree with him about denigrating the professionalism of, of the investigation that Robert Mueller is conducting. We will see what Mueller comes up with. Um, uh, I'm not an impeachment enthusiast. Um, uh, I do not think Donald Trump has thus far proven himself to be very good at his job. Um, I don't think he has respect for our best traditions as a country or even a great deal of curiosity about them. It's not to say that everything he's done is terrible, um, um, but and or, or certainly I think they're patriots serving in the administration. But uh, particularly his attacks on the free press, his attacks on individuals, it is beneath the office of president. And I think uh, whatever he touches tends to – seems to be degraded um, a la Rex Tillerson's experience as secretary of state. So look, Rudy has his own reasons. Um, Good people can disagree, and he and I deeply disagree about what's going on right now. 
Tell me what you think is going to happen in November to the extent you could even uh, read the tea leaves out that far. <laughs> You're in a, a ripe swing district right here, Virginia yeah. 7th. It's Dave Bratt versus Abigail Spanberger. She is trying to become the first woman, I believe, to ever win that seat. We had her on the show. A Democrat hadn't held it since, I believe, 1971. And back then, Democrat, huh? Democrat meant something different, as you know. Well, and, and, and so how does the contours of the district overlap with the, uh, the, the city limits of Richmond? I've stopped trying to figure it out because if you go and look at it, it is the most bizarrely gerrymandered. See, I well, mean, this goes to part of the original sin that's afflicting our country, which is the rigged system of redistricting. Well, maybe it was. I try to think sometimes, was it the perfect crime while Democrats were very content that Obama was kind of untouchable as a two-term president? You saw the stats. Republicans went on to take something on the order of 1,100 seats across state houses, governor mansions. Well, you they got... kind of ate the foundation of, of power, and, the, and they were able to redraw districts. Well, well, let's take a big step back for a second, right? Let's remember what happened. So in 2010, Republicans have a wave of reaction to Obama's election in 08. It's not dissimilar from what happens to Bill Clinton in 1994 with the Republican Revolution after he wins in 1992. You got a, a midterm election tends to be low turnout, high intensity, and benefiting the party out of power. That 2010 election happens to occur at precisely the right time to take advantage of the next census. So all the, the districts get redrawn in time uh, you know, after that fact, after that election. So the state houses are controlled by Republicans at that time. They then oversee the majority of the redistricting, which is a fundamentally rigged system. It's but then politician. that's paying huge dividends now. If you Of saw, course, that's my point. And then it's amplified by the electoral college distortions. Like you can really carve out things. And it's like it's, it reminds me of like when Trump would get, you know, from a financial journalist perspective, knocked for buying something on very little money down. You buy it on leverage. <laughs> you put very little cash down, but you buy, you still get it. You still gain control or some sort of ledger domain about an Atlantic City casino. And he pulled off that arbitrage. If you think about Ohio, I remember listening to Ed Rendell the night the returns came in and his voice sounded funeral real like, wow, he actually pulled off a way to win Pennsylvania. Well, Wisconsin, so, I mean, I'm so, still, we're well, still talking about 2016. Well, we are. And I think we're talking about in part because the Democrats don't have a consensus about about why they lost, which itself is kind of dumb and dangerous. Um, look, and a lot of different factors occurred, and obviously Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by 2.9 million, um, but it was 78,000 votes in three states that ultimately made the difference, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Now, uh, you know, the reason I'm reluctant to break out the crystal ball, because you often end up eating glass, is um, is that, you know, I didn't... Is that a metaphor mix? That was pretty deft, my man. Well, it's not original to me, but I don't know who said it first, so I'll just take Did you just mix two metaphors? That's brilliant. For an editor chief Gosh. there you go Can uh, we get a special effect and <laughs> we'll do that in post-production go ahead that'd be awesome so um so look you know what what i the thing i fault myself most for when i look back is that when he's up 11 in the des moines register poll in iowa which is traditionally a swing state iowa um has six bordering states there's contagion that i should have paid more attention to and I think we all should understand that national polls really don't mean anything. You got to look at state polls. Um, it, it still is incredibly uh, what he did um, uh, is – people forget the Trump team didn't think they were going to win. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why we still need more answers about you know the, the uh, Russians' impact on the election. But on the statewide level, to your point, like you know in the 2012 election with Obama – uh, uh, Repub Democrats won the state house, the won the statewide congressional numbers significantly, but Republicans won the number of congressional seats two to one. And this is why you got to pay a lot of attention to um, <clears throat> attempts to uh, 
raise the barriers to entry for voters, um, you know, which are still being litigated in in the Supreme Court cases. There are going to be attempts to try to um, forestall political power by rigging the system. And that is what redistricting is. And and both sides have done it in different places at different times. But it's a rigged system and it needs to be done independently. And because unless general elections are relevant, right now only 35 competitive seats in the House, people, low turnout will occur. And the more decent people are driven out of the system by lack of competitive general elections, by the sense that politics is ugly, dirty, and violent, um, that ends up empowering the people on the extremes, and that ends up dividing our country. And that's the primary order of business that even transcends any partisan victory. Right now, history would say Democrats are going to do well in 18. Um, going to be enough to overcome the rigged for district? But I, I, we'll it is a, this is a joint question here, though, and it's sure. the last time I swear I ring my hands about 2016 because I'm still kind of shaking my hands. Incidentally, the biggest earthquake before that was our district as well. Eric Cantor in the biggest upset Oh, my God. Beforehand. And nobody you saw forget. that. Nobody no. saw that. But here's another metaphor. It was the canary in the coal mine, my man. Yes, it was. Uh, I, I would I want to ask you going back. Um, Actually, that's a super interesting one, too, because remember, Cantor's election, as you well know and your listeners well know, ends up pivoting upon an accusation that he's going to put forward immigration reform. Now, Cantor and Boehner had been planning on putting forward immigration reform. When Cantor lost to Brat, that was interpreted by Washington as a referendum. As a rebuke. All right. Yeah. And so that's partly why we're here today. Because Boehner and Ryan and it Cantor It is like that, 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 knew. Uh, that, um, Alleged cow that tipped over the can of kerosene in Brandachicaca. <laughs> Mrs. O'Leary's cow? We're in a metaphor contest, Till. Let's full, do it. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to John Avlon, who is incoming senior political analyst at CNN. Is that the title? And fill in anchor? Yes. Uh, I have to ask you, and this last question I ask about 2016, would Joe Biden or a median Democratic male have won in that election? Because I, I'm still tortured by this stat that Obama very rarely for... Uh, a, a, an eighth-year president went out with high numbers. I think he had 60% approval rating. Yeah. So in that case, don't you want to run the quote-unquote incumbent, his Veep? Well, it, look, it, it, there's so much about the election that's bizarre. Donald Trump wins with disapproval ratings among exit polls north of 60. Obama's got approvals in 60. The economy's improving. Hillary Clinton, yes, has the baggage of being run against, you know, being run down for 25 years and characterized as a... But if we were to control for the, the gender aspect, that let's say that that was Look, what moved I think it that's and you could clearly, never run a perfect regression clearly thing. Clearly a factor. But had Tim Kaine been the candidate or had a median male, regardless of race, I mean, Obama crossed that. I mean, he won Iowa twice, if I'm not yeah, he, well, he won the Iowa primary. I mean, you know, as he used to joke, you know, I was because what you end up getting is a mandate for the way Donald Trump has gone, and you saw the cover on Time but, Magazine but it's not. today. I think that's what's important. Donald, it's Trump... like a leveraged mandate. <laughs> if you've rigged well, if you've rigged, if you've rigged kind of redistricting and anything, it, we've had guests on before. Like we've had Charlie Gasparino of Fox News. I mean, sure. it's a it's a marketing it's a it's a strategy coup because he bought it on on very look, little look, money he, down. He's a hype man. He's a marketer. That's what's important to understand about Donald Trump, and and that's the one area where he seems to have real insight. Um, but you know, he ran for for office. This was a YOLO campaign designed to increase his brand. Uh, break and, out YOLO for us, please. Uh, you know, uh, what is it, YOLO? Uh, um, you only live once. Uh, what is? You only live once. I, no, is that right? No. Is it? I don't know. Yes, you only live. Once. I've heard of R I N O. YOLO is only. You I've only heard live of O M F G. I've used it as an acronym for so long, but I think you only live once. Um, and um, 
uh, a bucket list campaign, if you will. Point is, I think the dog caught the car. He didn't necessarily expect he was going to win, but he's always had a good sense of what plays well. And that's been his highest calling. You know, I think, remember, he, he rises to prominence in Republican politics as a birther, as a, a birther evangelist. And I think his sense was it just played well. I just wonder how much Barack Obama, when he closes his eyes at night, rues the day. Were you at that White House correspondence dinner? Yes, I was. Rues the day. You never know with the butterfly effect of history, but if he didn't lambast and humiliate Donald Trump. You know, that game gets too esoteric. The butterfly effect is a perfect frame for it. Look, you asked the question if Biden had been ahead of the ticket. At the time, I thought Hillary Clinton was a better candidate. I think it's clear that Biden would have won a lot of the voters that Hillary lost, the white working class voters in Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, um, because he speaks their language and he didn't have the baggage of being attacked like her for 25 years. That said, I think she's the most experienced candidate we've had perhaps ever. I think Tim Kaine was a great VP nominee. I wish he was actually thinking about running this. It's like Ned Flanders running. I mean, that was he's well, like our he's but, like our Richmond's Ned Flanders. But he's so much more than that. I mean, right? He's almost like, he's like a fascinating, you know, Pope Francis Catholic. He's you know, to the extent we need to depolarize religion from our politics, um, as we need a religious left to answer the religious right. I think he's a genuine and uh, uh, advocate of that. He was a great mayor and governor and senator, fluent Spanish, and he's a replacements fan, which means a lot. <laughs> Uh, to some of us. But, um, but, but you know, so but I think that one of the biggest problems and one of those troubling things is the Democratic Party still doesn't have a consensus about why it lost the election. And I think there are folks who say with some energy in the party that the answer is to go further left and more identity politics. And that'll appeal to the voters they lost in Wisconsin and, 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 and Michigan and Pennsylvania. That seems nonsensical to me. Um, but again, I think one of the really shocking things about Donald Trump winning through uh, the rigged system that existed um, is which he called out is that it's basically a rebuke to Madison's Federalist Ten. You're supposed to win by reaching out and winning over the reasonable edge of the opposition. Um, and they did have the insight that they could actually depress votes in certain places, and and do a minor realignment based on cultural resentment, and uh, it worked. Um, but but I think the important point is it's not a mandate for the policies he's pursuing now, but it's having a massive ripple effect domestically and internationally. And, and I think China's thrilled about the direction things are going. Certainly Vladimir Putin is the weakening of institutions. Um, but, um, but the policies that are being pushed through are not where the mandate is. And that's really interesting. You do have to listen for the larger message the electorate's sending. Um, I do think it was a certain pump the brakes. On, on certain changes that maybe Mitt were perceived Romney, as being too Mitt fast. Mitt Romney, who thought he was a fraud, thinks he's going to win the next time in 2020. Mitt Romney's running for Senate in Utah right now. What the hell is he going to say? So I have to ask you, though, what are those? What kind of allegiance to these guys that he, he tore down left and right, like Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, why do they have an allegiance to protecting him, especially with this, this, this sharp relief immigration issue you have on the cover of Time magazine this week, a very disturbing cover of the two-year-old Honduran girl sobbing in terror as she looks up to an apathetic Donald Trump. It's a good Trump. cover. And I can say Time magazine's covers under Ed Pheasenthal, my, my old buddy and colleague, are, are very, very strong. Um, look, I, I think with Ted Cruz, um, I mean, Ted Cruz is a not widely liked human. <laughs> Uh, in in the Senate, what was what they colleagues. said about him in the Senate? It was Lindsey Graham. They said if somebody shot him on the floor of the Senate, like no one would want to prosecute the shooter. Oh, you <laughs> it know, was or, a great or, or Al, Al Franken had another line before he left, and Al Franken died for your sins, America. Um, it was uh, 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 
I like Ted Cruz money the, more than most of my colleagues, and I hate Ted Cruz. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the best thing, and you can imagine it in the voice of Lindsey Graham, who's your, what, home state senator, he said, yeah. I, I, I love this, I, I died laughing when I saw it. He said, if you killed Ted Cruz on the floor of the Senate, and the trial was in the Senate, nobody would convict you. <laughs> <laughs> Lindsey can be funny. I mean, look, I think, you know, look, I think with, with, with Lindsey, you know, who called out Trump and then has tried to work with them. And I think folks like Cruz, it's an issue of practical home state politics. Trump is 86% popularity among Republicans. I will point out, as Matt Lewis wrote a great column for us, that is less popular than George W. Bush was with Republicans at this point in his term, and from indeed most of his term. Um, so let's not get too high and mighty. What I think you do have, Bob Corker has called out this like cult-like environment. And it's it's you reap what you sow with polarization and hyper-partisan media uh, it is it is artificially empowered the extremes. And so you get a degree of Stockholm syndrome. What Republican politicians will say off the record and on the record about President Trump is diametrically different. So, again, it's our job to actually communicate the truth about what they're saying, even if they're unwilling to um, uh, on on the air. Uh, and, and that is their own electoral interest speaking. I think Marco Rubio actually is carving out a really interesting position for himself. Um, as not simply being a Trump apologist. No, he's not taking them on as directly as Bob Corker and, and Jeff Flake and John McCain. But the problem is that Corker and Flake are retiring. I would have much rather seen Corker and Flake run for election, re-election as independents in their home state. They would have maybe lost a primary, but they would have won the general election. Because I'm a big believer in Charlie Whalen's idea of the fulcrum strategy. We need a handful, four to five independent centrist senators who can be the balance of power. More people like Angus King. Uh, and uh, I think Corker and Flake could have been that. I mean, look when you try to, did Sanford try to just pull this off in South Carolina? When you try to be an iconoclast, it is beholden to, for better or for worse, it is his party. He does have that popularity and he'll knock you. It certainly did it in Alabama, yeah. But look, look, I mean, first of all, Doug Jones got elected in Alabama, right? I mean, this is part of the point you and I were talking about earlier. I think people misunderstand um, the, the deeper divisions in American politics as they're expressed today. This is not red state, blue state simply. You don't cross a state line in America, the Mason Dixon line, and find a new country in a new culture. It's not the case. The deeper divisions between urban and rural. And guess what? They've been that way forever. My last book was about George Washington's farewell address, Washington's farewell. And if you go back and look at the debates of the Constitutional Convention, because Washington was an independent president as a matter of principle. He warned about the forces he felt could destroy our democratic republic, hyperpartisanship, excessive debt, foreign wars, and foreign influence on our elections. Um, by the way, he nailed it, obviously. He was a prophet, and the farewell address is incredibly irrelevant, relevant because of that. But you go back to the Constitutional Convention, the debates then about ratification of the Constitution, um, before there were political parties, had a lot of echoes because they were about states' rights versus a stronger federal government. It was urban versus rural. The advocates for a stronger federal government were largely urban. The advocates for more states' rights were largely rural, and they were afraid the stronger federal government would encroach upon their culture and their economic way of life. These are debates we see today, which is why Hillary Clinton won most cities in the South, um, including Charleston. I don't know about Richmond. She won Birmingham. Um, so that gives, I think, uh, it Do breaks people really down the know stereotypes. That? Hillary Clinton won Birmingham. Yes. Maybe not she, Tuscaloosa. She 
Well, let, she won most uh, cities in the South. Wow. And and that's important for people to understand because it breaks. We did chip so away So the likes at of Atlanta, New Orleans. I mean, stereotypically, yeah. it's all just one big red block. Right, but it's not. That is important for people to know. It is not. And it's not simply because of the high percentage of the African-American vote in the cities either. This is about the ultimately the deeper cultural divides in our country. And they are not red state, blue state. And it demeans the country and the people who live here. And we need to find ways to depolarize our national debates. And that's one way to do it. This is an extension of a much older debate. What's different is that Donald Donald Trump really does violate the basic rules of politics the way we've seen them to date because he doesn't try to reach out and form new coalitions. He has he doesn't you know, he placed the base on steroids. Um, and, and that this is this is this is dangerous to the Democratic, the American experiment in a different way uh, when it comes to respecting our best traditions and upending a lot of um, not political conventional wisdom, but the political gravity in our country. So Republicans may have their own particular problems. This is all about polarization and hyperpartisanship. Reach, reap what you sow, which is why we need to heal that breach. And that's part of why I'm in Richmond today, actually, is researching my next book, which is about Lincoln and his plan for winning the peace as well as winning the war. How you reconcile and reunite as a nation after civil war. You want to talk about reconciling and reuniting? Sure. How's that for a segue? In the minute or two we have left... Uh, who is approaching status as standard bearer of the Democratic Party into 2018? I mean, we're already at the first day of summer 2018. Look, the reality is the Democratic depth of bench is really thin. And that's uh, shocking given the circumstances we are as a country. Um, I think th- if you talk to Democratic operatives and wise men and electeds, um, first of all, you're, you're going to have a lot of people run. That's fine. Um, but they really don't have any great bright ideas. There's no dark horse people are buzzing about in a really concerted way. In the same way, you're the conventional wisdom front runner in 08 Hillary Clinton, but people were buzzing about Barack Obama. Um, Bill Clinton in 92 was buzzed about. You know, you, you get these these things. Um, most people I've spoken to will default to a Joe Biden one-term promise, reunite the nation, reunite the party, running with like a Cory Booker or Kamala Harris. Um and, and that's plausible. You know, you could see it if you squint. Um, I think Mitch Landrau, former mayor of New Orleans, is a dark horse, but someone who can talk like a goddamn person and really be able to compete with Donald Trump, although he's not a national figure, although he gave one of the great speeches of the century about Confederate statues. In a none of the above scenario, ProPublica locates 800 Al Gore ballots in Florida hidden under a house in a vault retroactively declaring him the heir apparent in 2000. And there's a groundswell of support for Al Gore to run. What? Is this, no, no, is no, this your gonna, scenario? No, it's not going to happen. No, look, <laughs> look, I think you could see some really surprising yeah. Dark Horse candidates run. but um, I was just trying to throw a monkey wrench into that. No, it's no, just so open-ended right now that nobody knows. I mean, you'd, it's you, you know, who is the chief opponent? Uh, who is the chief standard bearer in the Senate and the House? Uh, there's a leadership vacuum across the spectrum to say nothing of uh, – um, you know, the outgoing speaker of the House. Look, I, I think I think we need to I think we're at a point ultimately where we also need to think about building alternative architecture to recenter the politics in our country. A right Bitcoin now. based party. No. Ooh, interesting. John interesting. Avalon, you know what? I am never having you in studio again. You know why? Why? You are so photogenic, intelligent that ah! it burns my cornea. I can't concentrate. <laughs> it's really kind of you to come oh, in man, here. Oh, man, my great pleasure. Take a break off your vacation in this interregnum before you become a hoot and holler and star at CNN. Thank <laughs> you so much. My pleasure, man. Full disclosure, our engineer is the venerable John Valentine. You can and should love us on NPR One, which is a great app. Download it. And on iTunes, location fulldradio.com. All the episodes are there. Do subscribe and love us. 
and uh, throw lots of praise and stars at us because I need your validation. Hey, full disclosure, it's a new day for this Daily Beast. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. <laughs>